Welcome to the Church on a Hill podcast. This is Pastor Corey Lahiri, and the Church on a Hill podcast is a ministry of Palouse Federated Church in Palouse, Washington. We are glad you joined us for this podcast, and we hope that that this will bless you. We are continuing our journey through the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves nearing the end of the book, uh, Revelation chapter 20, if you want to open your Bibles, or you have it on a device, or there should be a Bible near you underneath the chair, but uh, the last book of the New Testament in the Bible, um, 22 chapters, and we're in the 20th chapter, and we have been journeying through this book for some time now, uh, and the goal was not to become the experts in Revelation. So if you're disappointed at this point saying, I'm not one of the experts, well, that wasn't my goal. So, uh, uh, and I don't think it was any of your goals to become an expert in Revelation. Uh, there's lots of people out there who already claim that title and let them have it, right? Uh, but we, as students of the word and followers of Jesus, want to uh, receive the vision that he gave, right? He's giving this gift to the church. He gave it first to John the apostle, who then gave it to real churches that he was connected with, who then, through the Holy Spirit's leadership, passed it down through the centuries. God wanted his people to have this book. All the challenges that we've heard in it, he wanted the church to have those messages. All the encouragement uh, that's been in this book are from these visions, these, these images. He wanted for the church. All the instruction about things to come and connections to the Old Testament, things that were, he wanted to give to the church. So our approach together has been in the Bible studies and reading plans and, and Sunday morning services to receive these, these messages and visions of revelation as straightforwardly as we can, even when they're difficult to us, right? And to receive uh, conviction when they are to convict us or to receive encouragement like we will receive today. We will receive encouragement, I believe, from what we're going to hear in chapter 20. Chapter 20, I want you to know right off the bat, is one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. Some would definitely say it is the most. So I'm not going to solve some of the controversies or bring up all of the controversies because that would fill our time. Um, but today we will hear of some, some tough images, important images. We'll hear of Satan. And we'll also hear of a lake of fire. We will hear of judgment and condemnation. But we will also hear, and sometimes gets ignored with all the controversy with Revelation, we're also going to hear of resurrection and serving in a new life with God. And we're going to hear, again, of God on his throne. And, and we're going to hear which we're going to continue to hear in chapters 21 and 22. We're going to hear of death being put to death. And that is very encouraging. So let us pray as we come to Revelation once again. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and redeemer. You are our author and perfecter. You have given this book and its visions and the plan you have revealed to us is, is to encourage us and to give you glory. So, Lord, may you help us have eyes to see and ears to hear today. Lord, I, I pray that your people would be praying for one another and for themselves, that they would hear your word as an act of worship, that they would hear your word as an act of spiritual growth, that they would believe today that they could leave this service today not exactly as they came, but
but that through the hearing of your word, your Holy Spirit would work in them and change them in some way for your, for your plan and for the good of others. God, I pray that they'd also pray for me and other preachers, Lord, that we would rightly declare your truth from your word, whether it's Revelation or any other book and the other services in this area going on right now or today or throughout the week, Lord, we pray for faithful proclamation from your word. For from it, Lord, we receive the truth and we receive life from you. So, Lord, thank you for this time in your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Revelation chapter 20, right after chapter 19, where we had another one of these interludes of praise and worship that we heard about and hearing the, the, the loud singing of hallelujahs in chapter 19. And now we are in chapter 20 for some more action, you could say, uh, for God's fulfilling plan. Starting with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then... I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books 
according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. And I want to visit again the purpose of Revelation. We've been coming back to what is God's purpose with this book and the set of visions that he gave to John the Apostle who who then gave it to the church. And I want to say Again, it is encouragement. It's encouragement for the people of the Lamb, followers of Jesus Christ, who is equated to this vision of the Lamb of God who was slain but now lives and reigns. It's encouragement for the people of God to persevere because God has a plan. And yeah, some tough stuff's gonna happen in history, but God is working God's plan, right? And so especially for churches in those early centuries of Christianity, but churches now too, people who are persecuted, especially for people who are persecuted, this book has been encouragement to say, yes, though they behead you or though they kill you, God will work his plan. And and part of that will be, he will bring you into it one day if you are in him, if you're in his book, right? Uh, So some of the churches that we heard about in the beginning of Revelation were being actively persecuted. Some of the churches, you may remember, were, were being uh, tempted to cave into the world, right? So not all churches are persecuted. Not all Christians are persecuted. Sometimes we're in the world and surrounded by the world, and it's maybe all too easy to be Christian. And we're not getting actively persecuted. We're getting actively tempted to be like the world around us. So some of the images and messages in Revelation are to challenge and say, hey, don't, you can't fake it. You can't just... Claim to be a Christian, but not really be a Christian. You're either in the book of life or you're not. So are you in? Are you really following him? Right? And so, yes, there's encouragement in this book uh, for those who are, need encouragement to persevere and might be persecuted. And there's, there's also a challenge in this book to say, hey, are you, are, you, are you caving in to the worldliness that's around you at the ancient times? Are you, are you caving into Rome and becoming more like Rome than you are like the the, the eternal empire, heaven, right? Who are you becoming more like, the lamb or the, the beast is one of the things that Revelation is challenging us to ask. So lots of purposes. Now, I will say, I, I, I've searched high and low in the different commentaries I read, and they talk about uh, all kinds of controversies, and, and sometimes they confuse me, right? Um, and then that's when I close the book and say, I don't want to be confused. Uh, Because I don't think, as challenging as Revelation is, I don't think God gave these visions for confusion and controversy. And I don't want any of you to walk away from this series saying, well, that was a waste of time. I'm just confused by the Bible. And all all we had was a bunch of introductions to controversies. That's not the approach I've been trying to say and I uh, with you. And that's not why Revelation was given. God didn't say, I know what I'll do with the last book of my Bible. I'm just going to befuddle them right? No. And I, but I think that's one of the tricks the devil has tried to play with Revelation. He's, he's gave it a bad name in a way, right? A bad reputation. This book should not have a bad reputation. 
It is not a confusing book in, in its, its core messages. And some of you are being surprised when I keep saying that at a Bible study. Its core messages are all straightforward. The lamb wins. Evil is defeated. Death is done with at the end. God has a plan. These are not confusing themes. And they are all throughout Revelation. There are intense images. There are people, Christians, who disagree about what those images mean. I, I'm not denying that. But God, God gave these images to make us think and encourage us and cause us to persevere. And he wants us to know. Part of the purpose is he wants us to know evil is defeated. He wants us to know, as we heard in, in chapter 20, the devil is defeated eventually. What about the thousand years? And like, oh, okay, we'll get there. But it, it, the, yeah, the devil is defeated. He wants us to know that if you have loved ones or you know uh, the history of Christianity and you say, well, if there's a good God, why did so many people die in persecution? He wants you to know I'm the God who pays attention and they will be honored. That's straightforward and he says it here, right? And he wants you to know there's a Lamb's book of life. And if your name is in it, then you've been one who has been transformed by Jesus Christ the Lamb and you're gonna maybe be surprised when they're reading your name from the book and say, look at all the things you've done because they were the things that the Lamb did through you. There's lots of great purposes to Revelation. We could keep going, but let, let's, let's talk about some of the facets of this chapter. And again, I'm not going to solve all the controversies of the book of Revelation, but um, let's talk about releasing Satan. Yeah, you know, in one of our Bible studies, they said, Pastor, am I reading this right? Satan was thrown into the county jail. Then they released him. Then eventually he got to play around, and then he was ultimately punished in, you know, the state pen at the end, and he's dead, you know, but... Oh, that's an interesting metaphor. Uh, uh, I, I, there's a lot here I don't understand. But it, let's be clear. It says first that Satan, the great serpent, that ancient evil being uh, that chose to depart from God, that chose self-glory over God's glory, at some point in God's plan, yes, he's going to bind him and the nations are going to not be deceived for this period of time. Now, I look at history and say, that hasn't happened yet. There's other good Christians who, who have different views of this, right? Or how it's going to come about. But I'm on the side that just is pre this happening, okay? Because it doesn't seem like in history we've seen a thousand years of peace where evil has been restrained in the way it's described here. Okay? But I, I want you to notice a detail that happens right at the beginning of the chapter. And some of you in Bible studies noticed it this week and were encouraged by it. Does it say a team of angels restrained Satan? Does it say a thousand angels had restrained Satan? In the singular tense, it says an angel. I love that. And it doesn't say and the buffest angel in heaven, right? Doesn't even name the angel. Yeah. Again, the lesson of Revelation is God is sovereign over evil and, and as real as evil is, as real as the evil one is, and we should, you know, pray against him and, and things like that, and we shouldn't dismiss his existence, but let's not make him bigger than he is. When God wants to deal with them, when God is done using him in a sense for God's purposes, he will be dealt with. You know, don't equate the devil and God. They're nowhere near each other, okay? One angel locks him up. Love it, okay? People argue about other stuff there, but, but don't spend time noticing that. I think we should spend more time noticing that and, and making us think God is almighty and 
God is sovereign and God is, he's not gonna let people or evil beings who make choices for self-glory and selfishness ruin his plan. He's not going to. Yes, he gave us free choice. He gave us free choice to, to, to selfishly waste our, our lives if we want to like the devil has. He, yeah, but God, God's choice is to exercise everything in his ability for good and for his plan. And so he is sovereign over evil. And even as evil works, and even as we sometimes cave into temptation, God is over all of it, and he's going to use it for good in some way. He doesn't author evil. He doesn't author sin. But he knows and is powerful and can somehow work over all of that. And there's great deep debates about that. But, but God, I think what we're seeing is here is God can restrain it when he wants, and he can eliminate it when he wants. But he's using it in the meantime so that people will actually have real experiences. Will you choose God or not? Will you choose good or not? Will you like our, one of our songs today? Will you choose to use your life to do holy and good and just things? You have choices every day. Some will say, but why did he have to create an evil being in the first place if he's got to restrain him? Or why create a being in, in the first place that you're eventually going to have to throw into the lake of fire? Right? And I get, I have empathy for people who ask those questions, but, you know, because some people say, well, hey, you know, if I, I imagine a universe, I would just not create Satan. Some would say that. And say, good for you. <laughs> you're not the creator of the universe, right? And, and he allowed this thing called free choice even amongst, apparently, his heavenly beings. And so this fallen angel, God knew that this fallen, beautiful creation that he made would choose not to use his beautiful life in beautiful ways. And God, I think, grieves that, but said, I'll use it. I'll use it. So God not only creates Satan, it's undeniable, because God's creator of all things, uh, God created others who disobey and others who won't believe. And yeah, God doesn't immediately destroy them because God is patient and merciful, the scriptures teach us, right? He, he doesn't long for any uh, to, to, to not be in relationship with him. He longs for everyone to be in relationship with him. So God patiently, the way you can look at chapter 20 here, God has been patiently allowing Satan and others to exist and sovereignly uses even the things they do as part of his plan. I mean, let, let's think about the fall of Adam and Eve way back in the garden. If God is all-knowing and, and all this, I mean, and, and, and the fall really isn't just an idea. It's something that happens for all of us. We're all fallen, right? But what did that lead to? Ultimately, human beings being sinners leads to the Son of God coming to earth right? Because the Son of God had to come to earth to make the way for us to be forgiven and made new. So God, knowing that we would fall, knew also at the same time, yeah, and that's how I'm going to demonstrate my great love for them. Though they will choose self and they'll choose to deny listening to my, my truth and sin, I'm going to come anyway, right? So the sin of humanity led to, in a way, in God's sovereign plan, led to the greatest act of love in history, God dying on the cross for us, right? And so you could create a universe where sin didn't happen or we didn't have choice or whatever, but then would we know that God loved us so much that he'd become a human and die for us, truly experience human death? We wouldn't know, 
unless he came. And this is the way he's authored the story. So without our brokenness, which yes, our brokenness came through the temptation of the serpent. Without that, there would be no Christ on the cross, maybe, right? And we'd have no knowledge of God's deep love for us in that way. So I I, want to be clear, though. I don't think the evil one, Satan, is trying to set up God's acts of love. But the evil one isn't all-knowing and all-wise, and so he doesn't realize that God can outflank him so well, right? All right, let's look at the thousand years and just settle all the thousand-year questions real quick. Um, The millennium questions that some people ask, no. Uh, it, it, the thousand years is also known as the millennium, and there's, there's, all, there's different categories within Christianity uh, that talk about the millennium and when it happens. And actually, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this. My original uh, title for the sermon was something about a thousand years, and I, you know, I, th- I thought I was really going to go into it. We did it some of the Bible studies this week. But it's clear that it's a, a given period of time and that God is restraining the evil one and that he's ruling for this period of time, this lengthy period of time, thousand years, and then there's a release, right? So there's an order to it. And good Christians disagree about when that's going to be initiated and so forth. And I I just want to say to, with some of these other things that come up in Revelation that good Christians have disagreed about for centuries, that we might want to hold that with some humility instead of too proudly and then divide over it or something. We can honor the scriptures and say it's here, and Christians disagree about how to interpret it without dividing and, and, and saying there's, there's only right one understanding of the millennium. Well, there is. I think scripture is true, so there's some right perfect teaching of it. But I need to be careful saying I know that, right? So, for example, one way you get a humility here is the scriptures also say to God, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. Right? And so there is a period of time of restraining here, and there is a period of time of reigning. But I also can come at it with humility and say, what I know is that God is in charge over all of it. So let, let, let's move to the first res- resurrection that it mentions, the true first resurrection. And what's clear here is that the, the first real resurrection in history, not counting Lazarus and other people that were, I would say, bodily resuscitated for an earthly life, but the true first human being that was resurrected unto the new life and had a new resurrected body, not just a resuscitated body like Lazarus had, was Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits, the firstborn from among the dead is one way the New Testament says. He is the beginning of the resurrection that will eventually occur for every believer. So in a way, the first resurrection has already started through Jesus Christ raising from the dead. And the the New Testament is clear that once our life is united with him in faith, we die to self and in a spiritual way, we are resurrected. We're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And yet, if we're honest, when you believed in Jesus Christ or came to faith, right? You didn't get your new glorified resurrected body right away. Uh, And, uh, right? I haven't seen you walk through walls or anything. Uh, But you are on the trajectory of that, is what the New Testament is saying. And one day, that experience of the full bodily first resurrection will happen for you, though. It's already happened for you spiritually. Paul put it this way, I think, in Galatians 
Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Does he mean I, I hang on a cross? No. But he's saying, I spiritually have, I died with Christ. He says, I no longer live. Is he saying he, he didn't have a heartbeat anymore? No. He's saying his old identity is gone, right? He says, Christ lives in me. That, that new identity of Christ is in you. The righteousness of Christ. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or as he said in, in Romans, Romans chapter six, he says this, for if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So the first resurrection that occurred in Jesus Christ, we are going to be in God's plan. However, he works that out in the timeline. We are going to be resurrected. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So, Revelation is clear. The New Testament is clear. There will be a raising of God's people to new life. We are not going to just be disembodied spirits out there. There's going to be a raising uh, of God's people to new life in his kingdom. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter of scripture which talks about the resurrection of Christ and why we need it, but also our resurrection. And, and Paul gives this metaphor of we are a seed now and we will sprout into what we'll fully become, okay? And I really, really believe that image is helpful. And you should read that 1 Corinthians 15. So um, including people like John's brother, James, who was beheaded, uh, for, for being a witness of Jesus. He's going to have his head put back together. Not only just his head put back together, he's going to have a new body. Let's talk about the devil real quick. The devil versus God. We mentioned him a bit. The devil is real. One of the tricks he wants us to play is, uh, on us is to think he's not real. He's real. And the scriptures are clear about that. And Jesus has confrontations with him throughout the Gospels. But what do we see here in chapter 20? This great gathering of evil forces, right? And as numerous as this, the, the sand of the sea, and they all gather, and that is intimidating, right? If you, could you imagine being some of those saints at that time? It says there are saints there, so there's Christians on earth who are surrounded, um, and it you know, makes this Old Testament connection of Gog and Magog that we won't go into today, but that would, I just want to say that would be very intimidating. It'd be, as, as John, uh, you know, keep in mind, he doesn't know all the end of the story as he's getting the vision. So John, as he's experiencing the vision and sees the gathering of evil forces in this vision of the future, that would have been probably scary for John to think, oh no, the evil forces are surrounding God's people. But then they're just destroyed in mass from fire from heaven. Um, and it's an image meant to convey the victory, complete victory of God's goodness over evil. And that evil in all its accumulatedness cannot stop God. Not even a bit, right? It's real, but it can't stop God's plan. So therefore, for Christians back then and Christians today, we need not fear evil winning in the end. And there's a lot of fear in this world. We need not fear evil winning, so we don't have to fight on evil's terms. Somebody does evil to us, and the New Testament says, and Jesus says, and Paul says, and other writers say, don't return evil for evil, right? Uh, do good to those who persecute you. 
And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Leave vengeance to God, right? Because we know the end. We know how he's going to deal with evil. Uh, he's going to do a much better job than we could do here, right? So we can, we can stand for truth and justice and, and fight the fights we need to fight, but we don't have to worry about conquering someone uh, because God's going to conquer in the end. Let's look at the book of life. The book of life. Um, there are people in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. These are those who are secure in Christ. They, they, it says they will be judged by their good works. We're not saved by works. We know that clearly in the New Testament, but, but all will come to an account before God, and God will show you, this is, this is how I was able to work through your life, or for others, this is how you didn't let me work through your life. This is a real thing that will happen in the future. Um, the, the people who are in the Lamb's Book of Life are going to be contrasted with those who caved in, who took the mark of the beast, meaning who live by the world's identities. And they're marked, and they, they chose selfishness. They chose not to have a relationship with God. And in a way, uh, they're choosing not to be fully human because to be fully human is to realize I was made for a relationship with God, and God alone can restore me to that relationship being a Christian is not about being religious or about being part of one of the world's religions. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is about being fully human. The way to be fully human. Is to be fully human is to have the image of God that was broken in you by sin that can be restored by Jesus Christ, restored so that you can have a relationship with God now and forever. And if you aren't fully human, by, by having that, you're, you're, you're something less than that. Now, God's given you the human choice to stay in that brokenness, but he would much rather prefer you choose to be who you were created to be, right? As C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way, I think, I think the quote's gonna be on the screen. He says, to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast or cast itself into hell is not a man, it is remains. To be a complete man, or we could say person, means to have the passions obedient to the will and the will offered to God. To have been a man, to be an ex-man or a damned ghost, would, be, would presumably mean to consist of a will utterly centered in itself and passions utterly controlled by the will. Another way to say that is the lake of fire is fueled by the people's own selfishness and choices, right? God doesn't have to fuel their torment. They're tormented by their own self-centeredness and the lack of wanting any goodness, right? They're, it's, so let's talk about the lake of fire imagery. It's, it's a disturbing one, right? A lake of fire. Um, it's meant to show us that God's judgment is intense and it's, it's purifying like a lake of fire, uh, now, God is going to purify all of his creation uh, from all evil before there's a new heaven and a new earth, right? And the Bible talks about God being a consuming fire, and a consuming fire purifies, right? Um, and so this image of a lake of fire is actually connected back to Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, which talks about a river of fire. The image of a river of fire comes first in the Bible, Daniel 7. I just want to read to you, starting with verse 9. It says, As I looked, 
Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's a name for God that Daniel uses, the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream, or other translations have, uh, a river of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So, what I think God's doing here for John, for the church connecting Old Testament and New Testament, is what God started in the past of pouring forth a, a, a river of fire is now coming into the lake, meaning it's coming to its final destination, and there will be a, a purifying of all that was evil and all who chose to deny God, right? And it is intense. And images of fire um, are not what some people want to hear about. But they're used, Old Testament and New Testament, to, to uh, give image to the, the reality of judgment. And so that humans can't live arrogantly and think we can just get away with everything. Or that this life is just for me and I don't have to get into relationship with God. Right? Tim Keller, a uh, great pastor in New York City who passed away this year, uh, wrote this. He said, to say that the scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever. So what some people do is say, oh, well, lake fire, that's just an image, so we don't have to worry about it. Okay, what, what Keller is saying, to say that the scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever. The reality will be far worse than the image. What then are the fire and darkness symbols for they are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to the isolation and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favor and face of God, we literally, horrifically, endlessly fall apart. And that's what the lake of fire is an image of. Do you want that? Okay, be in the Lamb's book of life. <laughs> through his grace, through his gift. Second death. Second death. First death is when you die this, of this life. Now, second death is if you die eternally. Paul teaches, and well, the scriptures teach that the wages of sin are death, and no one is righteous on their own. Each person is destined to die a first death, right? But God is merciful and in God's plan, he doesn't want us to stay dead, though we deserve death because of our sins. Jesus Christ made the way to avoid second death. Second death is a human choosing to go their own way, choosing to believe in their self and their own word rather than in God and God's word, choosing to reject God, choosing to decline forgiveness. And this leads, this leads to ongoing or second death. A death of what a person was originally created by God to be, someone who could be in relationship with God forever. Dallas Willard, author of the book uh, Divine Conspiracy, other great Christian classic books, Dallas Willard wrote, the only reason there is a hell is because God makes provision for what people want. And hell is simply the best God can do for some people. Meaning, some people say, well, why get God, you know, the, you, this all-powerful God you talk about, why would he make creations that he's going to have to cast into hell? 
because he's also the God who doesn't want that to happen and gave those same creations free choice to surrender or believe, right? And yes, there's mystery in there about foreknowledge and stuff, but, but God, God is giving every person an opportunity to believe. And some people, as Dallas Word said, you know, what, the only thing God can do for them is what they're choosing is, I want self. I don't want to be near the face of God. And as Keller said, okay, you can have that, but you will endlessly fall apart then. C.S. Lewis put it this way, a little bit of honesty here in this front of his quote. He says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. He's talking about the doctrine of hell. So he said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. And then he continues, but it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It always has been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. So C.S. Lewis is saying, we may want to get rid of hell and say, oh, we're modern Christians or something. But you do that, you throw out the authority of Scripture, you throw out many of Jesus' own words, you throw out the tradition of what Christianity has said about judgment and hell. And you also have to throw out a reason argument that isn't it reasonable that a just and holy God would want to deal finally with evil and those who have denied him and don't want to be in his presence? And do we want a God who would force people to be in his presence who don't want him? So then you have to, what do you do with that argument? Right? So God is a fair, just, holy God. God will not force anyone into his loving presence. And God, you also need to know this, God is not going to wrongly condemn anyone. He's not going to allow anybody to, quote-unquote, trip into the lake of fire. Oh, whoops, there went Susan. Uh, shouldn't have made that lake of fire. No, it's not like that. It's going to be fair and just, right? And he's revealing this to us because it's true. And we need to know. So how does knowing this, how does knowing these things about the future, even though we didn't solve all the controversies of this chapter, the things that we, we are talking about today, how does knowing the, these things, how, how does this help us to live for the Lamb now? Well, first, I hope something that you heard today or in your study this week, your reading of chapter 20, that you came away saying, you know what? God deserves to be worshipped. What a gracious and merciful God. I came away reading this chapter and saying, who are we anyway that he wants us to live with him eternally? This, this, this chapter causes me to want to worship even more. What a gracious God. That though I in my life have listened to temptations from the evil one, he still shed his blood for me. Right? He still said, you're in my book of life. So it, it, how does knowing this stuff, it should, it should drive us to be people who worship God. Also, again, as we said at the beginning, for perseverance and hope, knowing that it, as bad as the, the world can be at times, there is the God who is going to fairly work out all things in the end, and quite simply, as many have said when they come to Revelation, I've read the end, and I know God wins, right? And that, it, I know that can become cliche, but honestly, 
That's really important for your hope in this world. Don't give up. Even when evil does something to you, even when somebody does dirt against you, don't give up. God is paying attention. God wins. Perseverance and hope. Urgency. Urgency. Knowing these things can give us urgency. If there is a lake of fire, and there is free choice, and these things exist in God's plan, and there is a duty of Christians to share the good news, and to whom much is given, much is expected, and we have been given the greatest news ever heard of a loving God who gave himself for us. If this is given to us, then there's an expectation of urgency, right? We, you are born in this century, or last century, some of you, right? Most of us, uh, on purpose. He wants you in this world. Not only so he could share his good news with you, but so that you now, if you're a believer, you're gonna share this good news with others. So I think even these difficult images, the, the ones even that I don't understand, the, the restraining and the loosening of Satan and, 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 and the lake of fire, all of this says, I want my life to be aligned with God's plan, who obviously what he's doing through all of history is he's trying to reach people, right? And I, and I want to be a part of that as a local group of believers and I want to be praying that way and looking in my own life, God, who can I serve and, and who can I share with? Right? Because we should be praying, as the scriptures teach us, that, that none should perish. We should be doing what Peter said, be ready to give reasons for the hope that you have. Knowing God's plan and knowing there's, there's a judgment in the end and every knee will bow, but some not in a good way. Um, gives me urgency to live in that truth in the present. And not just what Revelation can do for some lazy Christians and say, oh, God wins, and I'm already a Christian, so I'm just going to take it easy. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to have non-Christian friends. Boy, my reading of Revelation doesn't let me off the hook because these images are too intense. That's what some Christians do. They use God wins as an excuse, well, he's in control and he's all-knowing, so don't have to do any witnessing. He'll reach who he wants to reach, and people will make their decisions. That's not why God gave this book. He gave this book to say to the church, be the church, therefore. Be my representatives, be my body. While you are here, to live as Christ, as Paul said. And yeah, look forward to the day when you die, and it will be gain, and it'll be great. But in the meantime, your life is Christ and sharing Christ. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1. He said, I eagerly expect and hope that I in no way will be ashamed, but will have complete boldness, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he said, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor So, fruitful labor is what knowing this should help us to be a part of. He has you here as a believer in Jesus Christ, not just so you can rest on your blessed assurance, right? But to to become witnesses who have urgency that others may hear. And I think that's going to be some of the rewards in heaven, by the way. I don't think we're going to care about jewels and stuff. I think the jewels and the rewards, those images are... We're going to be up in heaven and people are going to come up and say, I found out 
that you were one of the ones that prayed for me. Did you know you shared with me? I was a kid at a VBS one time. I was a kid at camp. I, I, I am at least partly here because you, God worked you into my plan. God wants us to have that urgency. In the end, and this is the end, just so you know, uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell Choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires God's joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. And to those who not. Oh God, we thank you for revealing the truth to us. I pray that, that whatever I share today, Lord, that only your truth would remain and that you would be glorified and that you would use it to encourage your people, help us to persevere, help us to have right urgency, help us to believe in your holy and just judgment, Lord. Help us to be your witnesses. Thank you for restoring relationship with us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for this encouraging set of visions and your promises, your true promises about the future that you have revealed to us. Thank you. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a breath prayer you could pray this week is simply, God, no evil can overcome you for your perseverance, for your hope. And um, we have that chosen video series coming up starting on October 4th. So maybe that's something that you'd like to invite somebody to, a video series about Jesus' Jesus's life. All right, we're going to uh, continue in worship. Hello, friends. I truly pray that this message blessed you. And if you want to find out more about our ministries or listen to other messages or videos of our worship services, you can check us out at palousechurch.org or search for Palouse Church on YouTube or check us out on Facebook or we are on uh, the Bible app. There's different ways to find us. You can always email me, Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at palousechurch.org uh, to connect with me or to send me a prayer request. We really appreciate you connecting with us in this way, and may God bless your day.